0: From
1: WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. On the show today, we hear how Amish volunteers are rebuilding homes destroyed by hurricanes in Louisiana. Plus, in honor of Black History Month and the founding of the Negro Leagues, we look back on a conversation about Black baseball history in Louisiana. But first... While Louisianans spent much of the last week busy with Mardi Gras celebrations, political news has still been swirling around the state. Here to catch us up is Stephanie Grace, columnist and editorial director for The Times-Picayune New Orleans Advocate. Stephanie, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. The biggest story of the week, of course, was the Wednesday deadline for organizers of the recall effort against New Orleans Mayor LaToya Cantrell to produce signatures, so did they? Is there going to be a
2: recall election? I don't know. That's the answer to that. So um, nobody does. They produce signatures, which, you know, the suggestion is they have enough signatures or otherwise they would not have dropped the boxes off at the registrar of voters office. However, they have not shared them, despite the fact that there was kind of an agreement in court with my newspaper to to do that. Um, they say they have enough. The um, couple things that have to happen, the registrar of voters has a certain amount of time to go through and verify the signatures um, to make sure they're accurate, to make sure they match actual voters. Uh, people can pull their names for another few days or add them if they want to. And then there's a court case. Um, the organizers of the uh, recall effort are suing, saying that the um, there are people on the rolls who should not be on the rolls as active voters, that the registrar and the secretary of state have not, um, they don't like the word purge, but have not kind of culled the voter rolls for inactive voters, people who haven't voted in um, two consecutive federal elections, or maybe are otherwise ineligible. They may be dead. They may have left the, the jurisdiction. Um so there's a lot going on and it's there's a lot of uncertainty. But one thing we do know is that it's when this is not going to be over anytime soon, whether there's a recall election or not because there's a lot of political fighting and legal fighting going on. And on Thursday, the mayor's um, campaign basically spoke out and said spoke out a, about this effort to reduce the number of active voters. and of course that that would mean that, fewer signatures would be required to get the recall on the ballot, saying that it is a voter purge and, in fact, is um, possibly racist. Got it. Well, if it turns
1: out that they do have enough signatures, how do you see the recall campaign playing out?
2: Well, it's, uh, you know, the first question would be when the election would be, and that would be up to Governor John Bell Edwards. Um, there are a couple of established election dates. One is in April, which it seems very soon for this to happen, the other one is election day for governor, which is already a very big election. Um, the organizers don't want that because they say, kind of correctly, that it would get swallowed up by the the election for governor. We have an open election for governor, so already a very big deal. Um, you know, but they're, so they're asking for a special election, uh, but that costs a lot of money. That costs public money. So, you know, expect this to be dragged on, to drag on for a while if. They do have the signature. I I have to think the election would probably be in the fall. And we're in for kind of a crazy few months, if that's the case. Um, And of course, the way this would happen is it's not the election isn't. Remember what happened when, when Arnold Schwarzenegger was elected governor in California? Under California law, it was one election to basically recall the sitting governor and elect a replacement. That's not what we have here. Here it would be yes no should Latoya Cantrell be recalled. If Latoya Cantrell is recalled, then there's a special election for mayor. And in the interim there would be a an interim mayor who would be one of the two at-large members of the city council. Um so just elections and elections and politicking and politicking if this goes on. But I have to say even if they don't have the signatures, you know, the fact that they got Tens of thousands of signatures probably is a very big problem for Latoya Cantrell, regardless. Well, probably, and looking at many
1: steps ahead here, if the mayor is recalled, is it clear who might run to replace her?
2: Well, there's a lot of speculation on that. I think nobody has said they would run. Um, the two most likely candidates that that you know people in politics talk about are Helena Moreno, who is one of the at large council members, of course and um oliver thomas is out there oliver thomas is was a council member years ago and then ended up having to go to prison um got out had kind of a a nice rehabilitation story and is back on the council um and again probably others but those are those are two names that you hear a lot Well, Carnival is a
1: prime time for political satire. Before we leave today and uh, before we leave Mardi Gras behind, what were some of the hot topics this year?
2: Well, I always write a column about what the kind of popular satirical targets are um, for politics. And this year, it it was LaToya Cantrell all over the place. Um, And one thing I thought that was interesting was she got really skewered by parades that are considered very leftist, like Crudevue, and also parades that are much more conservative, like Crude Etat and Chaos. And that, I think, kind of mirrors the her position in the city right now. She's getting it from all sides. So there were multiple floats about her travels, her first-class travels and business-class travels, when she only very reluctantly paid the city back Um, There were floats about her um, use of the Pantalba apartment, some of them kind of racy. Um, And, you know, there was the one kind of famous video that where she flipped off a float. Um, And and it was from the crew of Tux. It wasn't one of the satirical parades. So it's it's not really clear what provoked that. I mean, people were holding up their own signs. And, um, you know, she kind of had a moment when she kind of very, forcefully responded to something and it was captured on video and all over the internet. Other topics were, there were a lot of book banning and book burning floats that, you know, were, that's about something happening nationally and also in the governor race. Jeff Landry is kind of running against librarians, <laughs> the attorney general right now. Um, there were some Donald Trump floats. There were some Elon Musk floats uh, obviously, you know, we for years we had the kind of glorification of the saints, you know, because they were doing so well, and now we have this, you know, the saints. When will the saints recover? Kind of theme. Um, one of the parades, I think it was d'Etat, had the um, the the prop was a person with a paper bag over his head. That goes back to the old days when you know the saints were called the Aints when they were really terrible before anyone ever thought they could win a Super Bowl. Yeah, definitely
1: a lot of creatives floats out there. Well, Stephanie Grace, columnist and editorial director for the Times-Picayune New Orleans Advocate, thanks so much for being here. Okay, thank you. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. February is not only Black History Month, but also brings the 103rd anniversary of the founding of baseball's Negro Leagues. Before baseball was integrated, the Negro Leagues was where players of color participated in America's pastime, including some of the best the sport has ever seen, like Satchel Page, Josh Gibson, Buck O'Neill, and Jackie Robinson. But while some of the most well-remembered Negro League teams were in Kansas City, Indianapolis, and Newark... New Orleans has a rich history of black baseball that has often been overlooked, including one player, Toni Stone, who was one of three women to play in the leagues. She did a stint with the New Orleans Creoles. Last year, president of the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Bob Kendrick, joined us for more on this fascinating history. Today, we hear an encore of this conversation. Bob, one of the first recognized African American baseball teams in Louisiana was the New Orleans Pinchbacks. They came together in the 1880s, years before the Negro Leagues was established. What do we know about this team and their reign?
3: It was, by all understanding, a great baseball team, a great early black baseball team with some dynamic players, uh, seemed to be pretty well funded. They traveled the country. Obviously, they were huge there in that New Orleans area, and they just happened to be owned by the guy who would become this nation's first Black governor. And and so, you know, that gives you an indication of the positioning of Black baseball in the eyes of so many uh, and the kind of leadership. And that's one aspect of this story that we talk about that a lot of people don't always grasp because you look at this surface level as a baseball story. And it's a tremendous baseball story. But here at the Negro Leagues Museum, we've always looked at it from the standpoint that there are three key themes that I relate. Number one, this story is about economic empowerment. And then this story is about an unprecedented level of leadership that emerged in the African-American community as these owners and other leaders of these teams were being entrenched in those communities and the influence and impact that they had. And then ultimately, this is about the social advancement of America as Jackie Robinson was handpicked from the great Kansas City Monarchs to integrate Major League Baseball and break Major League Baseball's color barrier 75 years ago, this coming April 15th. So all of that is a very pertinent part of how this story manifests itself and why this story is is actually bigger than the game of baseball.
1: Well, well, let's talk about a little bit why that story is bigger. I mean, the team was named after PBS Pinchback, a Black Union Army officer in the Civil War who became the governor of Louisiana from 1872 to 73. He was the first African-American to govern a U.S. state. So what does that tell us about What was going on at the time in the relationship between Black politicians and baseball?
3: Well, that goes back to that leadership piece. These, for the most part, were Black businessmen who were buying into baseball. And that's, again, oftentimes the overlooked aspect. This was the third largest Black-owned business in this country by the time the actual organized Negro Leagues are created here in Kansas City in 1920. And so this was big business. And Black owners could make a pretty doggone good living with Black baseball, but their influence was felt throughout. And, and again, wherever you had successful Black baseball, you typically had thriving Black economies. And so for Mr. Pinchback to go in and fund and finance his team, uh, I think that speaks volumes to the level of leadership that he provided there in that New Orleans community.
1: And, you know, speaking of very prominent Uh, black owners of baseball teams. One in Louisiana was Louis Armstrong, who owned the Armstrong. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, Louis Armstrong owned the Armstrong Secret Nine. In addition to that team, you know, there were plenty of Negro League minor league teams in Louisiana. There were the New Orleans Black Pelicans, the Crescent Stars, the Caulfield Ads, the Monroe Monarchs. What do we know about some of these teams, some of their players and their relationship with their communities?
3: Yeah, and for the better part, these were semi-pro teams. Uh, they weren't a part of, of what we kind of term the organized professional Negro Leagues, but it doesn't diminish the impact they had. And there were great players that came from many of those teams that you just listed. One notable who played for the Crescents was the legendary Hilton Smith. Hilton Smith was a great pitcher for the Kansas City Monarch. Hilton Smith is in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Hilton Smith did something that I don't think we will ever see done in the game of baseball again. He won 20 games or more 12 consecutive years when he was playing for the Monarchs. And Hilton Smith was one of those great two-way stars where when he wasn't pitching, he played outfield for the Monarchs and hit well over 300 for his career. You know, he was a dynamic pitcher who spent time there in Louisiana as there were a number of legendary stars that called the Crescent City home. Uh, And so New Orleans black baseball history is very rich.
1: And speaking of the Creoles, we have to mention Tony Stone. She was the first of three women to play in the Negro Leagues. She played for the Kansas City Monarchs, Indianapolis Clowns, and the New Orleans Creoles. So tell me a little bit about her.
3: She was an outstanding baseball player, and baseball was in her heart. She, she loved competing, and she loved competing with and against the men. She didn't know, I think, initially, that she would ever get that opportunity to play professional baseball against the men. But as fate would have it, and as her talent continued to manifest itself, she does get that opportunity. And she gets to New Orleans, and really that is the first stop in terms of her elevation to eventually the Indianapolis Clowns and then ending her career with the great Kansas City Monarchs. But she becomes, as you mentioned, the first of three women to play professionally in the Negro Leagues. Tony Stone, Mamie Peanut Johnson, and Connie Morgan, pioneers. All three were tremendously talented athletes. Tony Stone took the roster place of a ball player that you might have heard his name before, the great Henry Aaron. So when Henry Aaron is signed away by Boston in '52, the very next season, the Clowns hire Tony Stone.
1: It's taken years for so many of these Negro League players to really get the recognition that they deserve. So much of the history is lost. And and we're missing a lot of information about teams like the Pinchbacks and the Pelicans. So what can we do to start, you know, kind of reclaiming and retelling this history and and bringing it back to life?
3: You know, it, it takes these kinds of efforts to tell these stories. And and honestly, I don't think the folks in in Louisiana never wanted to know about the Black Pelicans or the Crescent Stars or the Pinchbacks or any of these teams that we've talked about during this broadcast. They just simply did not have a way to know. And as my late mother would would oftentimes say, and God bless her soul, you don't know what you don't know. You'd be hard pressed to find any areas in this country that haven't been touched by Black baseball. But nobody knows anything about it. And, and that really was the story of the Negro Leagues in general. And, and it's, it's important because so oftentimes these athletes played in anonymity. They shouldn't lay at rest in anonymity. These were tremendously gifted athletes who gave so much, not only to our game, but to our country
1: Bob Kendrick is president of the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City. Bob, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you.
1: From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. When you hear the word Amish, you're probably picturing a lot of things, but not the Louisiana Bayou. But right now, Amish volunteers are in Louisiana, rebuilding homes destroyed by hurricanes long after most other aid groups have left. Stephen Basaha of the Gulf States Newsroom reports, the trips have led to cross-country connections over hardship, food, and faith.
0: Give them space. That was Ruth Crosby's first instinct when Amish volunteers came to help rebuild her home in the Louisiana Bayou last May. Now, Amish culture has a reputation for being reclusive and anti-tech. So Crosby didn't know if the men and women wanted to avoid photos or just have the Crosbys stay clear of the work.
4: Then she noticed. They'd come and they'd sit underneath the tree with sandwiches, you know, and it's like, maybe I could cook them a meal. And I asked the girls, you know, and I said, if I cook, would y'all eat? And she's like, oh yes, you know. She said, we'd love to try different things.
0: Crosby lives in Golden Meadow, a small town surrounded by marshland on a highway leading to a big oil port. In August 2021, Hurricane Ida made landfall not far from here with sustaining winds of 150 miles per hour. Those winds tore most of the roof off the Crosby's home before rain eroded the inside. Not just the floors and walls, but irreplaceable things.
4: Our wedding kitchen, we got married in 84. My wedding kitchen was, oh, Wet and just bleeding that's something you can't get back
0: she was able to buy lumber to rebuild the problem was finding the help
4: I had one contractor come out and quoted me a price of a hundred and six thousand dollars to to redo my house I said I, I can't I can't do it I didn't ha- I don't have the funds to do it we live off of social security
0: then she ran into the town's Baptist pastor. He told her he's partnering with an Amish volunteer group out of Pennsylvania called CARE. They rebuild homes after natural disasters, including in Alabama and Mississippi in the past, and they'd be hoping in Golden Meadow for the next three years. After volunteers assessed the Crosby's property, they spent eight days working on the house for free. Root's husband, Keith Crosby, was impressed watching women wearing long traditional Amish dresses, bolt in brackets. With a big old gun, bigger than them. Both. I couldn't believe it. I said, there was a a lot of doing that, you know. Volunteers with CARE didn't want to be interviewed on the radio, so I called up a different Amish volunteer group working in Louisiana. Hello, yes, Gid. Gid Yoder is with Disaster Aid Ohio. They're helping rebuild Lake Charles, Louisiana, which was hit by a Category 4 hurricane more than two years ago. I caught Yoder in Ohio on his flip phone. Amish culture has a reputation as being anti-technology, but they're more tech skeptics. Yoder even has a computer.
3: And I use it for emails and my computer is locked down. So we don't have people tempted to go on all the, the stuff that you're not supposed to like that. There's temptations there.
0: Members of the Amish faith usually live together in rural communities, often in northern states. Another reason it's not so common seeing them here in the bayou. But while Amish is a Christian denomination, the volunteering isn't about converting people. Still, faith is an important reason for their volunteering. You can read in the Bible. If you see somebody that's cold, you
3: tell them, be warm, but you don't do anything about it. You don't give them a coat, then you're not helping. The Bible teaches us if the Lord helps you, you need to help other people.
0: Another thing that makes what the volunteers are doing here unique is that this is long-term aid. They're going into their second year at Lake Charles. It's also a partnership between three different Christian groups, Amish, Mennonites, and Methodists. Yoder says it's amazing how churches can work together after a disaster.
3: I always tell them uh, when the end of times are and we're up in heaven, we won't have one part for Amish or one part for Mennonite or, or Catholic. We'll all be together up there, so... Why not help each other
0: down here in Golden Meadow, Ruth Crosby and the volunteers bonded over their faith and over Ruth's cooking.
4: I cooked them some shrimp. I cooked them some fish. We did a jambalaya. How did they like it? They loved it.
0: The volunteers got up the roof and subflooring for the house before they left last May. But Ruth and Keith are still living in a FEMA trailer. There's still a lot of work left before the house is livable, like doing the ceiling and closing up the walls. Now that CARE is back in Golden Meadow, the group did offer to work on Ruth's house again. But she thinks there are so many other people here who still need the help more than she does. At least she has a roof again and a grant to hopefully cover the rest. Wandering through the home now, you could see the scriptures Ruth wrote on the wood panels and how the Amish volunteers added their own along with a personal message.
4: It says, Keith and Ruth and family, it has been a wonderful privilege to meet y'all. I pray that this house will be a place of rest, refreshment, and joy for all who enter. May God bless you and your family every day. Love y'all, Rebecca.
0: For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Stephen Bissaha.
4: The
1: Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration among public media stations in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Thanks to our guests, Stephanie Grace, New Orleans advocate, Times-Picayune, editorial director and columnist, and Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City. Our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz, and our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Purcell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. And Louisiana Considered wants to hear from you. Please fill out our pitch line to let us know the kinds of stories that you have for our show. And while you're at it, fill out our listener survey. We want to keep bringing you the kinds of conversations that you'd like to listen to.
2: Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. More at rouses.com with additional support from the Sazerac House.